G'day and welcome to the Hunting Connection Podcast. My name is Zach Williams and I am your host. Here we'll connect you with hunters, fishers and outdoor enthusiasts from around the globe. This podcast will share hunting and fishing stories including past experiences and tackle the tough hunting stereotypes our community faces. We hope to be a positive influence to those outside the community while also having a laugh along the way. Hope you enjoy the podcast. All right, it's been hailed as the crossover event of the century between hunting podcasts in Australia. We have Zach, Hunting Connections podcast. Mate, how are you? This has been a long time coming. I'm excited. Yeah, good, Matt. Good. Um, Yes, it has been a long time coming and I'm very excited as well, mate. Mate, there is so much to talk about and the great thing for you listeners is we're going to do this as a two-parter. There's going to be episode one or part one is on my podcast and Part two is going to be over on Zach's podcast, so it's going to be literally Monday, Tuesday dropping. How good is this? Double the sound of us. How good? So, yeah, if you're uh, listening to this and haven't listened to Hunting Connection podcast, look out for tomorrow's episode and it will pick up where we left off today. Mate, all right, let's get into it. I, um, let's do it. Firstly, the, the, mate, Cody Gearin. <laughs> is, like, who is this bloke? I mean, just... There's just so much going on with him. Come on, you two didn't think you could do a crossover episode without Australia's number one hunting podcast guest on the sidelines, eh? He's a funny fella, um, all-round good bloke, and yeah, podcast uh, guest of of history. It's <laughs> look, I've heard a rumor he's going to start charging to go on podcasts. I look, I don't, I can't confirm or deny this. Would not surprise me. You have to uh, pay for these overseas hunts somehow. Yeah, that's definitely something a two seventy shooter would say. <laughs> so, mate, um, thanks, Cody. We appreciate you going on all the podcasts, and I don't think we'll ever get tired of uh, hearing your voice. Definitely not. <laughs> ha, that's a meme, mate. Um, all right, tonight for me, oh, mate, oh, bow hunting, bow fishing. There's so much to talk about with you as a bit of a guru with the bow. I have been playing around with it, and people call me dumb, and I'll second that <laughs> on the sense that I haven't even shot a deer. And I'm chasing them with a bow as well. Like, I mean, you can't be much more silly. But, uh, mate, how good is it? I have so much respect for people like yourself that just really mainly hunt with the bow because it is just another level. But, God damn, it's fun. Yeah, man. Look, I love it. You know, recent years since having um, a young family and a wife, it's uh, hard to put the dedication into the bow as much as I used to um, in my younger days. So, it's been a bit on the back foot of recent times. Um, so I picked up the rifle a bit more as as people have probably seen with my uh, Snake Island adventure and New Zealand adventure, um, going more rifle. I took the bow with me, but opportunities just didn't really present themselves that I felt comfortable taking, taking with the bow with not putting as much time as I uh, used to with it. And yeah, man, it's, it's rewarding. Uh, you know, I put over... 300 hours into my first deer with a bow so man that's cool and uh <laughs> let's get to the hog deer because i know we were talking at the time and you know i did ask that question because i was like man to get the ballot entry to get a spot is pretty rare and then 
I was sort of there going, oh, geez, I hope he's taking a rifle just on the back because I'd hate to see you do all the work and create the little stand and your, your cart that you take it over and then not get a hog deer close enough for the bow, but you could have taken one with the rifle. So I'm so glad you did and it was successful. Tell us about that. That's just something I'm aspiring to. I'd love that opportunity to get out there on the ballot and I do enter every year. So, yeah, the Blonde Babe um, hog deer ballot, I've been entering for, geez, probably the last six years, I reckon, I've, I've put in. Um, you know, this year or end of last year when they drew it, I was um, woken up the next morning to a bunch of messages saying you drew the ballot, second period. So, um, I jumped on straight on to Dano from Dano Hunts, um, High Country Hunting Gear, and sent him a message saying, hey, I've, I've drawn. What do I do now? What's your advice? <laughs> and Within you know minutes is what's your number? I'll give you a call, and we're probably on the phone for a good good hour and a half just talking about what to do, what to get ready, and I just picked his brain for the next couple of months on the on the lead up to it, getting all my gear ready. It's pretty exciting. Hog deer being one of the hardest deer species to get in Australia because you pretty much only have that small coastal region of Victoria on the um, on Gippsland area there that you can actually hunt them free range. You know, there's a couple small populations um, in Queensland for guiding purposes. You know, there's I've heard talks of some in South Australia, but very very small numbers. But yeah, apart from that, it's one of the only free range hunting opportunities for hog deer in the world it's very exciting to draw one of those ballots in those premium areas i drew snake island there's four different balloted areas and yeah second period is the best period to draw on snake island which is just incredible (laughs) so good and obviously so much planning to get over there and do it how was it when you did get the opportunity to take one so it was a lot lot more work than I thought it would be. Um, I know it's a lot of sitting and waiting, but from where we got dropped off on the island from the boat, the issues ran aground straight away. So there was, I think, five, maybe six of us dropped on the, on the beach um, near where we were planning to go in by. And um, four out of the – no, two out of the four carts on that drop – were broke within the first 100 metres on the beach. So, it just went to shit straight away. (laughs) So, mine being one of them, the wheels buckled and welds snapped. So, I gave it a bunch of testing on bitumen. You know, I went over a few gutters, went in dirt. But once you put the pressure of the sand on those on those ladder stand carts, the sand just put so much more pressure on them and they just buckled under the weight. So, yeah, we pretty much hiked off the beach up onto the edge edge of the scrub. We found a camping spot. We um, worked together. All, yeah, it was five of us. All five of us worked together to get everyone's gear to this camp. We set up camp. And um, Nathan, who was my um, hunter's support, him and I walked to where we planned on hunting, which was the other end of the island. It turned out to be a about 11 kilometers there from our camp so we smashed that out got there on the first night which you can't hunt so the sunday afternoon and we got to this tree that would be hunting from and um yeah we were on hog deer straight away we probably seen 18 deer that first night and you know took a bunch of photos picked out a couple stags you know 
And I said, you know, if one of these three stags that I picked out walks out tomorrow night, first light, I'm going to take it no matter what. So 11 Ks back to camp. We got to camp probably, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night after, after the walk back. And uh, yeah, next morning we took it slow because uh, first shooting light, uh, first first shooting was 8 a.m. We couldn't, that first day we couldn't hunt before 8 a.m. And so, yeah, we took it slow, cooked breakfast. A couple of the guys left a little bit earlier. On the way in, um, one of the guys shot one. Um, he was walking into his spot and it's walked across the path in front of him and he's followed it off into the bush and shot it about 60, 70 meters away. So we've come in probably 20 minutes after he shot it. So we got to see our first hog deer on the ground, which was pretty cool and reassuring. And yeah, went back, got in at 12 to where we were shooting from. And um, yeah, 6.30, that first deer walked out and it was one of the target bucks. And I crawled in to 80 meters with the 270 and let a bullet fly and dropped it on the spot. Were you nervous shooting with the 270? I mean, it's a bit of a, you know... Ordinary cartridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shout out to you, Cody. Nah, I, it's it's performed. I've dropped dropped a sample with it. I've dropped um, plenty of fallow with it. So um, I'm pretty confident in in it. And you know, they're only a bit bigger than a Labrador, so I I, I knew it was going to do the job. <laughs> Mate, that's cool. I uh, firstly just the experience to get over there. Like that's cool and a unique opportunity that a lot of people will never get. So that's just a win. And then to harvest it, there's a lot of people out there that go over and don't get to harvest it. So, man, well done. That's just such a good thing. Yeah, thank you. It's it was an extremely great opportunity. Um, we were in a very because period two is a very um, good period to be in. Um, I'm pretty sure five of the eight hunters harvested a deer and four numbers. of them being stags. So yeah, well. only one hind was taken in that in that group. So correct me if I'm wrong, is it you're allowed to take one stag and one doe? Yeah, one hind and one one stag. Hind, yeah. um, the only issue with it being, you know, it was mid-20s, probably 27 degrees when we shot it. So we dumped the guts out straight away. And you can't part up the deer, you can't butcher it. You have to leave it pretty much whole. You can um, cape it um, with a special permit that you get in your briefing on the Sunday. But with how warm it was and how far we had to go, we left the cape on. I had a shooting stick and we duct taped the deer to the shooting stick and carried it out, you know, long pole between two guys and, you know, the deer in the middle like you see in the old school (laughs) hunting films and that. Um, You know, only 20... 28 kilos gutted for the whole animal. Oh, it's um, a tiny. But heavy. <laughs> 28 well, yeah. kilos when you got to pack on and through sandy, bushy. Yeah. And 11 Ks, you said too, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And it, in so, sand's a different element. Like we did, I used to do a lot of training on sand and far out, man. I, if I never see another sand dune again, I'll be happy. I'll sort of say that. Yeah. It was, it's That's where the hard work started. So we. I shot the deer at 6.30. We were probably out of there by 7 and we didn't get back to camp till about 1.30 a.m. Yeah, wow. Big hours. It was brutal. Um, we ran into one of the other hunters. We heard a gunshot probably half an hour after I shot my deer and ran into the other hunter coming out as well. So um, we chatted to him to a bit and then, uh, yeah, walked back to camp. We got in 1.30 a.m., um, he camped off the side of the track and the next morning we began getting our stuff ready for the boat to come pick us up. 
and yeah, just assembled camp. Everyone from our camp shot a deer, so um, yeah, we we all met up at the beach and left that that day. So you you ended early. So how many days could you have stayed for? So we got there the Sunday. You had up until Friday um, lunchtime to get off the island. And so you guys we left, left on the Tuesday? Tuesday morning. Yeah, wow. Okay. So, well, I mean, you a positive you've harvested it and then you want to get out of there and make sure the meat's okay too because that's, that's a concern and then look after everything because they've got to check the whole body over as you were saying. Yeah, yeah, right, that's that makes it. Sense. First and foremost for me was keeping the meat good enough to take home. You know, I had a, a decent drive back to Adelaide from Port Welshpool. So I wanted to get that deer off the island as quick as possible, get it um, checked in at the check-in site and then get it as cool as possible and then butcher and cape it out as quick as possible. So, you know, we had had that done within 48 hours. In that 48 hours on the island, I think we'd done about 60 kilometres all up, you know, going from the beach to camp to where we're hunting and back. And um, I used Onyx maps to mark out where everyone else was hunting and that because um, the trails over there are pretty poor. So I was able to go back to camp and show everyone exactly where they were going so they didn't get turned around on that first morning. But, yeah, it's just a hectic, crazy, crazy place. Yeah, that's so cool. How's it taste? I mean, there's probably a very limited amount of people that have got to eat hog deer. What's it like? So discussing this with one of my past podcast guests, um, Ben Solaris, um, who's – I'm pretty sure he's taken every deer species in Australia. Um, me personally, I like the strong gaminess of red deer and fallow. I like that real strong flavor. And I've come to the conclusion that the reason why people rate hog deer and chittle axis deer so highly is because they're a very bland flavor compared to reds and fallow. They don't have that, I hate using the word, but gaminess. I prefer the word flavor for it because that flavor that gaminess is flavor to me. Um, so, yeah, they're very, very mild tasting deer. So, I reckon that's why they're very, very high rated. It was beautiful and tender, but, yeah, very, very mild in flavor. I had a really nice venison stir fry tonight. So, shout out to Gabby for hooking us up with some great venison. Man, it was good. And that's the thing, like, I hate the word gaminess and I was talking to the wife about it because, you know, her family won't even try it because that's the perception of, oh, it's gamey. And we were eating it and I was just like, man, like it's in a stir fry, obviously there's sauces and things like that. And we are just like, you'd never know. Like if you were eating this and we, we could give this to anybody and they would have zero idea that this was actually venison. And it is one of those things that we really as hunters I think need to – sort of promote a little bit more that that's a, I don't know who started the gamey flavor that, oh, it's gamey. You know, I've got my suspicions. Maybe it was the uh, the cattle farm industry. You know? <laughs> like, oh, it's gamey. Don't want to touch it. Beef's so much nicer. But uh, no, in all seriousness, I don't know how that came about, but it's really interesting, isn't it? Because there's so many people when I talk to them, that's the first thing they say, oh, it's gamey. Oh, have you had a, ever had it? Oh, no. Well, how do you know? I think it's the extreme lean leanness of the cuts um you know not having that fat and you know to us we know it's pretty tender but most people would think of a gamey cut of meat you know you have to have it rareish that puts people off um you know that strong flavor and it just doesn't have that fat within the meat as you know beef does and other cuts 
Yeah, and I think the other thing is cooking wasn't ever a real big deal. Like it's only really taken off, I feel, in the last sort of 10 years or so with like the My Kitchen rules and all those yep. different things that have popped up. Before that, oh, remember Huey? It was the the big fellow with the moustache. Yeah. You know, he was running – you know, he was sort of the go-to and it was a very standard sort of stuff. Like he, he didn't push the envelope with different things as far as I'm aware from what I can remember and that was quite a long time ago. But nowadays there's so many different cooking shows and I think social media, the internet, YouTube, all those things have been a, a blessing and a curse in a, in a couple of different ways. And one of the blessings is the fact that – there is so many people out there now doing it, promoting it, pushing it. And, you know, um, I just had Jason from Hunt Catch Cook on. He does a fantastic job of it. Love Jason's work. Oh, he's, he's such a great bloke too. And, you know, I love watching his thing. And I love the fact that he just live streams a lot and puts it up there and it's really easy to access. Plus his cookbooks are, you know, fantastic and we spoke about them. And then you've got like Meat Eater's done such a great job and, you know, I, I love listening and watching all those things that they do and, um, I think it's Daniel, Danielle Pruitt is one of the girls on that now. Yep. She does such a great job in how she gets things across as well. And it's just such a um, – oh, it's a great time to access information and especially from a cooking perspective. And it was funny. I had a mate ring me last night, just a, a teacher mate, and uh, he knows I hunt and he um, – he rang us up and said, hey, or just uh, another hunter gave me some venison. This is what I've got. What do I do? And, and I said, do this, this, this. And he had a crack at it and got the message today. He said, mate, absolutely unbelievable. I said, man, isn't it what? And I said, gamey? And he went, what are you talking about? And I said, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I said, but I think when you called me, you said, oh, I don't want to make it gamey. <laughs> I said, mate, just do this and you'll be fine. But, yeah, man, it's such a good time. And with deer numbers and, oh, what a time. What a time at the moment to be a hunter. It is, you know, touching on the cooking aspect of it. You know, I, I, I'm not sure how old you are. I'm 30, um, so a reasonable you're a young, young pup, mate. I'm, Yeah, I'm 40 this, 40 <laughs> this month, mate. So yeah, yeah, you're a young pup. So yeah, um, I grew up watching a lot of Jamie Oliver. Um, cooking's always interested me, not on the chef level. You know, I, I like spiciness and saltiness and sour and all of that. So I've you know spent a lot of years in the kitchen since since I was quite young, playing around with different flavors and stuff like that. And then having someone like Jamie Oliver in the spotlight, you know, he would cook venison and hair, and that you know he'd done a few catch and cook video type type series and that so watching that type of stuff um has really helped on the cooking aspect side of stuff and then like you said with meat eater also joe rogan how often he promotes eating elk um all these different wild game chefs that are popping up um there's uh i think his name's jesse in texas i can't remember his last oh yeah name. how good's he uh, he's he's got some wicked stuff a few years ago, when the first time I went over to New Zealand, I managed to meet a guy called uh, Cam, and he was one of the contestants on, um, I think, not My Kitchen Rules, but uh, MasterChef over there. So he was actually um, came out and cooked for us while we're in New Zealand. And That's um, cool. he served this venison dish that he became well known for on the, on the show over there. And it was like on a bed of pureed cauliflower with some jam sauce over the top and it was the best venison dish I ever had. But that really set him apart from the rest of the contestants because he he was doing these wild game dishes. Yeah, there, there is. There's just so much out there. And I think the other thing is, is if you cast back before pre-internet times, 
it would have been really hard to get those recipes. You know, recipes used to be handed down between families or maybe close friends. And nowadays, there's just so much access. You can just jump onto Google and go venison recipe and you've got a step-by-step and you've got a plethora to choose from, which is fantastic. The one thing I think with the internet is just finding the right information because there is just so much of it and there's so many things. And I've sort of said that before in the sense that one of the biggest barriers I feel nowadays is there is so much information that you can almost get information overload. And then you've also got to look at and go, well, do people have the ability to critically think and be able to unpack and go, okay, well, this person's put up this. But what's their background? What are they doing? What are they, you know, like I see so many times I see people go, I'm, I'm, I'm in education, hunting education, but there's no qualifications from an actual teaching or education perspective. Yeah. But they're selling it that I'm an educator. And it's like, okay, well, that, that's a skill set. You got to go, I had to go to uni for four years to get that degree to be able to teach. And then you go, well, people are saying, oh, I'm just going to start teaching. And so that's a concern I have. And then on the internet, you know, you see it everywhere. People just go, oh, I'm a doctor. And, you know, they might be. I had one, I had a student come one time and go, oh, this doctor, um, I'm going, my dad went on this diet, lost all this weight, blah, blah, blah. He goes, oh, it's a doctor. And I said, Who, who's this doctor? And I unpacked it. And I've been a chiropractor. Now, nothing <laughs> against chiropractors. My best mate, Mitch, is a chiropractor. But, mate, they're not nutritionists. They're, you know, they, they're cracking bones for a living. When they're putting out nutritional advice, you've got to sort of take that with a grain of salt. But, because they had the little abbreviation saying doctor, people just bought it wholly and solely, which was really yeah, interesting it. to me. Yeah. Um, you know, breaking that down with the um, whole stuff with the internet and that I, I find venison and other game meats uh, being a very diverse bit of meat. You know, you can use it for a lot of different dishes. You know, venison, you slow cook it, you could turn it into pies when it breaks down. You can you know, mince it up, make sausage rolls. You've got, you know, Metwursts and um, Kranskis. We use it for tacos quite a bit. Mince it up and make tacos out of it. Um, It's really, really versatile for pretty much any forms of cooking. If you use red meat in it, you can use venison for it. And same with stuff like rabbit, you know, you use chicken for it, you can use rabbit and substitute it that way. You know, so you can take any, they don't have to be a wild game dish to, you can take any, any dish and then just find the right cut of wild game to replace it with. Oh, hundred percent. I think Jace did one the other day with camel and it was an Indian dish and it just looked, oh my God, I shared it on the Facebook page because I was like, that looks bloody amazing. All right, let's get in the bows because I have been wanting to pick your brain about bows for a long time. And let's do it. What are you using? Like- I want to know what the bow is, what are your arrows, and what type of broadhead are you using here? If I call it broadheaded, that's a, a snake, and I, you know, we've spoken how I do like snakes, <laughs> so um, I occasionally do stuff up there. So apologies uh, in advance, no it's broadhead. I will do my best to keep calling it that. <laughs> so at the moment, I believe I have between mine and my my boys' bows, I have about thirteen in the hunting room right now in this podcast studio. My main hunting bow is a PSE NTN Evo, um, one of the John John Dudley ones when he brought that out. Um, so that's my main bow. I'm running a Option 6 sight on it. So it's got a multi-pin sight that folds out 
and then you've got a single pin that you can move down as a movable adjustment pin. Um, then it's got the sight tape and all of that on there. I'm running a um, Option Archery's Quiverizer on it. Love it. You know, wouldn't go back to a standard side mount quiver because um, you've got the, you know, you got the weight up the front as a as a um, stabilizer as well as it being a quiver. And then arrow wise, I'm running Naptime Archery Smackdown 300s or 350s, and Van Diemen 125 grain broadheads. All right, so your broadhead 125 grain—that's what I shoot. Is it? I don't even know the terminology here. This is going to show how beginner I am. But you've got your single bevel, I believe, and then yep, single it's the bevel. Four, and then the cross. What are they called? The quad. The uh, four blades. So that's called four, four blades. blades. Yeah, four blade, three blade, um, expandable. Um, you've got your. Um, yeah, there's there's so many different. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I was listening. Vortex Podcast Nation had uh, yeah, the Ranch Ferry on the other day, and they were unpacking all the different broadheads, and it was just such a fascinating listen. If you haven't checked it out, because I was just sitting there going, "My God, so many different things," and they talked about what happens with what. That's just yeah, it. It was really really interesting. So, man, firstly, your wife must be very forgiving spending that much on bows. Like, uh, <laughs> Fortunately, I had majority of them before we got together. Oh, so it's just been wrong. Yeah, okay. accumulating them. <laughs> Damn it. That's Ever where since, I went wrong. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, they are such a, such a fun thing. So, look, I heard and I'd researched a bit and it said using a, I guess, a target bow is a bit more forgiving than a hunting one because the limbs are quite sort of a, a bigger gap between the limbs. So when you're first learning and then your form and obviously, you know, it takes a lot of practice, it's better to start with. So I ended up getting one of those in black and I found that's pretty, well, in my experience, it's pretty true because, you know, I haven't got perfect form. I'm just starting out, but geez, it's super easy to get it right very quickly. Yeah. And even to the point, you know, I shot at 50 meters for the first time on a just when we were on a paid block because I don't have that space here at home. Well, I do, but I was very nervous. So I was sort of like, oh, I don't want to stuff my arrows or miss and it ends up in a neighbor's yard. That would be just probably the worst thing ever. So I uh, just keep it at 30 and then was able to do that. And I was like, man, I was hitting my target. And my target's, you know, a foot and a half by a foot high. It was a lot easier than I thought to really dial in quickly. Yeah, and then I've shot a mate's hunting bow, and I did notice I was definitely not as accurate using that. So, is that correct? Am I assuming I'm on the right path? I couldn't tell you anything about target bows um, on that aspect. When I jumped into bow hunting around about seventeen, I pretty much went full hog into the hunting side. The target side of things never really interest me you know i target shoot to make sure my bow's shooting good and just for the practicing side i don't target shoot just to target shoot what i found is you know you've got single cam dual cam bows single cams tend to be a bit easier for um beginners starting out with you know i've got a couple of pse stingers which are a single cam mid-range bow which is great for beginners um, if you could pick one of them up, even the older th Stinger 3Gs, which is what I'm running as my um, bow fishing bows. And yeah, they're perfect beginner bows. But yeah, what it, it's probably a lot to do with the cam 
let off of the bow that you're shooting and hunting bows tend to be have a very very light let off and that tends to be where that those issues come from yeah okay so what poundage are you is your main bow 70, 70? Pound. all, yeah, all okay. of my bows all of my compounds are set at 70 even my yeah. fishing bows just to keep up that you know even every single 70 pound bow draws different so you might shoot a 70 pound single cam bow and it'll be relatively easy to draw back but you draw back something that's you know a short axle to axle and that tends tends to be a bit harder you just sort of touched on it a little bit there mentioned in the fishing side yeah we're coming into summer so by the time this this is going to be out mid october uh i am hell keen to be out shooting some carp this summer and i have not bought anything so here's your chance tell me what i should be doing to get ready for summer and carp season what what are you doing can we unpack a little bit of the gear? If, no, if people out there haven't even seen this or thought about this, it's only just been legalised up here in New South Wales. So it hasn't been that long, probably I think 12 to 18 months maybe, maybe a bit longer, but that's not that long in the scheme of things. So talk to me about the differences. Do you use a hunting bow and then just attach the different things? And I'll let you talk about that. So be careful because it's bloody addicting. Um you're going to end up spending a lot of time and money doing it and you'll tell your wife that you're going out for half a day. She listens, be- Zach, stop <laughs> saying things like this, mate. <laughs> and you'll be gone from uh, first light to last light. Um, it's it's so much fun. I first went bow fishing when I was about 17. My dad took me out and that's where I caught the bug for bow hunting and I've bow fished every year since. Um you know, one year I had a goal of, you know, shoot over 100 carp in a year. I ended up shooting close to about 400 carp oh. that year. Um, <laughs> one particular session between three of us, we shot 140 and I shot um, 80 in that session. But, yeah, touching on gear, um, you can use your hunting bow for it, but prepared to get wet and muddy and covered in fish blood because it can be quite a – you know, some people stand on the bank. I like to get wet. I'll quite often be, you know, waist to chest deep bow fishing, um, chasing carp, you know, in the backwaters here where it's permitted in South Australia. It can go from ankle to chest deep in three steps. So you'll be watching a carp surfacing in the distance and you'll be walking towards it. And next minute you'll be neck, <laughs> neck deep in the water with a, with a bow. So it's, it's best to use something that you're okay getting wet and, you know, a little bit um, used and abused. Um, so that's why I've got these older 3G stingers. You can pick, you know, an old single cam compound bow up for, you know, 150 bucks here and there. But yeah, so you've got a couple of different options for reels for the bows. You've got a side mount reel with a drag release um, lever on it so you pull that lever and it tightens your drag and that's when you pull the fish in you wind it up um, or you can use a front mount reel which goes on to where your stabilizer goes on to and it's kind of like a hand line so it's got a thick nylon string on it and it hooks up to your arrow and it just feeds off like a hand line does you know that's the cheaper option for someone looking to get into it if they haven't really done it before 
then the uh, yeah more expensive reels are the side mount reels, or you can also get a couple of different other styles. But I recommend the AMS Pro Retrievers; they're amazing. Okay, so when you're shooting, I don't know the actual technical term, but the displacement of the actual fish in the water. Are you aiming above, below? Like, what are you finding is the best place to aim because of that displacement from our like our visual representation of what's going on? So yeah, that's the refraction of the fish um, in the water. Um, it depends on where you're bow fishing and how the fish is. If the fish is pretty deep in the water, you want to go low and then aim lower again. So you're looking down the arrow and you're not really using your sight. You're using your arrow. So you aim the arrow below the fish um, if the fish is deep. But a lot of the bow fishing I'm doing is in the murky backwaters of the Murray in South Australia. So you're quite often shooting a surfacing fish. So you pretty much just aim dead on the fish and you're shooting it. I love spear fishing and it's my thing. So... This is just like spearfishing and mix of bow hunting all into the one. So I'm like just super excited. And when I read that the DPI said, yeah, they did, I knew they did a trial and now they've said, yeah, we're on. Man, I've been hanging for it and it's been a little bit tricky with the, the little ones. So now I'm super keen. Now, talking of little ones, you have been, I guess, one of the people I look up to to see because you take the kids out a lot. And I try I to. Talk, yeah. I want to talk a bit about that because I look at my, young, oh my, I keep saying youngest, but my oldest. And man, he's a noisy little bugger. I don't <laughs> think like there is any way I could take him out, especially with the bow. That's for definite. Um, and then I want to also start to unpack some of the things that you've copped in, you know, the, the wider public because of what you've done with the kids, because that's pretty ordinary as well. So I've got a nine-year-old stepson. Um, I, he was about three and a half when I came into the picture. So I've you know, started taking him out fishing from pretty much then on. I think the first time I met him after dating my wife, his mum, we took him out fishing. So that was the first real experience meeting him and taking him out. And then from there, you know, taking him out fishing quite a bit. Um, I've taken him out on a few hunts and, you know, He's, he's been a pretty good lucky charm on coming out on these hunts. I've taken a couple of bucks. So his first two deer hunts, I took two bucks with him. And, um, yeah, so and recently, end of last year, I took him out bow fishing. So I set him up a rig and he managed to take out a couple of fish with a bow as well. Um, my youngest, he's been coming out since about six months of age. I've had one of those anaconda um, carry backpacks and started taking him out from there. You know, when you're taking kids out, it's not about you being successful. What you want is them to have a good time. So it doesn't matter if they're that little bit louder, as long as they're having fun, if they're picking up stones and kicking stick, like kicking stuff and throwing sticks and throwing rocks. And, you know, when kids come up to a body of water, they have a natural instinct to start throwing stuff in that, that body of water. Let them. They're having fun, you know. It's it doesn't always matter that if you take something or not. It's better for them to have fun and get the bug than you 
being successful and on their ass about being quiet and, you know, you don't want to be that naggy parent while you're out there. You want them to enjoy themselves so they want to continue keep coming out. Yeah, it's one of those things like he's very no, – he's, he's such a great kid and he's very noisy and I know he'd love to see the animals. Like he loves seeing animals and we I just got some trail cams back and we're going through it and every time the deer's there, he's just pointing and yelling and getting so excited and I really want him to see that. And look, you know, I, I generally only hunt state forests so – it's you're barely seeing animals as it is, so I'm sort of like, yeah. And plus, it's such a long trip away to uh, to get down there. So for me, I've done a lot of the fishing with him and take him to the beach, and that's been hilarious because I remember the first time we were at the beach, he got smashed by a wave. Like he just had no idea. He went in <laughs> to hit one, and it, it clocked him, and he got a, a mouthful of sand, and it was uh, it was pretty funny. But he he loves it, and just oh, got sand everywhere. I. I really find that, as you said, they just do enjoy those different things and they have this natural curiosity or just to go out and play. And, you know, my my twins now are just over a year and I watch my uh, youngest boy, he just grabs rocks and he's throwing them like crazy and he just loves it. Like he could sit outside on the rocks just chucking them for hours and not just – it's just so much fun for him and – that's really good. And I, I agree with what you're saying. You're not really out there to be successful, but for me, I'd love to be able to get him out there to see animals too because I think that would just amplify that passion of being able to go, oh, my God, look at that. So my thoughts on that, because you've got all these state forests that you can go and hunt to, don't take him to the state forests where you're going hunting. Go find a national park. Go find a conservation area, you know, your area is roughly littered with deer. There's places all over there that you can't go go hunt, but it's riddled with all these animals. Just take him out there for the day, you know. You can dress him up in, you know, camo and that if you want. You're not hunting. You, you're just going for a walk to see stuff. So he gets that feeling that he's going hunting and you've got more of a chance to see animals and you're not going to be disappointed if he spooks something. At least when you go out there, he's going to be happy if you give him you know, you got those little backpacks that the water bladders come in. Give him one of those, chuck a, you know, a $20 pair of Discovery um, binoculars around his neck, um, give him a flashlight, and he's going to be happier than a pig in shit. It's just about getting out there for him. And, you know, you might run into deer and he's going to love it. You might not run into deer and he's going to love it. But just start on those little steps and then work your way up to take him hunting in a state forest with you. Mate, my one, I don't know if your kids, you mentioned you had the backpack that the kids go in. I've got, um, oh, it's called the Poco. I can't remember the name of it, but it's one of the decent hiking brands. It uh, costs us about six, 700 I think. Absolutely brilliant uh, to the point where he shouldn't probably be in it because he's probably a bit too heavy now, but I can't keep him out of it. And yep. like even I'll be leaving if we go somewhere, he wants to bring it in the car and won't get in the car unless it's coming because he just loves sitting in it up high, having that vantage point. And it's actually great training. I use it so much. I throw him in the backpack and I just go for a walk because yep. A, it's it's weighted and B, he's just, you know, loves it, just sits there. It's the only time he's really quiet and not running around like a maniac. So it's such a win from from that perspective. I've used it so much more than I originally thought I would have. 
I get what you're saying, and I do agree. There, we've we've done that a little bit going around for walks and found a lot of tracks and you know been showing him that, and he finds that really interesting. So yeah, that's uh, some good advice there for people wanting to get out and about just to to start them on that journey, which I think is really important too, because you know you want to have that instill that passion of the outdoors as early as possible. So now I'm I'm hoping. With summer coming on, I really want to get him out fishing and and bow fishing and get him out and about for that. That will be just awesome because he loves fish. I've, I've, I've you know obviously been taking him fishing and getting him on the jetties and yeah. being able to look at him and he just froths on it. So that's the the next one. So how old is your oldest? Uh, three. So, okay, so still pretty young. Yeah, mine's my youngest is three and a half. So very very similar ages and very similar attention spans and stuff like that. <laughs> um, mine just got too big. He's you know he's a three and a half year old, the size of almost a five year old. He's is <laughs> is a big boy. Um, so he just got too heavy to carry around in the pack. So I started making him walk. Um, but yeah, even up until last rut, I was still carrying him around in that pack and just letting him walk for a bit when he wanted and then back in the pack. And, you know, on the way back to the car, he would always fall asleep in the pack. So it's pretty convenient. You can chuck some snacks in there. That's another big thing. Take lots of snacks. They're they're going to enjoy themselves just because they can snack, you know, take some lollies, uh, you know, (laughs) whatever, just just some sugar, some, you know, fun things for them to snack on while they're, because they're going to associate that, that being out there and that fun with all of that type of stuff. Mate, don't they eat? Like, oh, my God. Yep. I, uh, we just bought like 18 punnets of strawberries because they <laughs> were like 79 cents each and it will last a week and they just smash through it. And that's on top. We grow strawberries here too and it's just like, Jesus. Like, I didn't realise how such small little humans, I think they eat more than I do. Like, it's just <laughs> insane where they can put it. And that's the other tricky sort of one as you just touched on taking enough food out there to keep me interested in eating throughout and then it's just all these different elements that you you need to think about because i don't know about you but when i go hunting it's it's much more basic than uh than probably the gourmet platter that i'm giving the kids if we take them out that's for sure i love a good snack when i'm out hunting i've always been known to to have a few goodies in the backpack you know there's even going out for a morning hunt it's not unusual for me to have the jet boil in the pack and you know smoker comes around and i've got some noodles on the go on a cold morning or a coffee or you know cooking up you know something we just shot as soon as we shot it <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's get uh let's get back oh, what bow hunting is that the main one? I know you've got the 270. We'll forgive you for that one, Cody and I. But, um, <laughs> mate, what do you tend to find you just use the rifle to get meat? So you got meat in the freezer and then the bow hunting's the real passion to hunt with? Yeah, so, you know, I've been hunting since I was longer than I can remember. You know, all my earliest memories, I was out hunting and fishing and camping with my grandpa. Um, I'd stay there every fortnight. So every fortnight we'd be off doing something, whether it was down the southeast, um, down the Korong, chasing mulloway and salmon or hitting the cockle run or going to New South Wales and chasing fish and camping on the banks of the river or going off to the southern Flinders Ranges and shooting goats and rabbits and all of that. So for as long as I can remember, I've... Uh, I've hunted. Um, when I was about eight, I was given a fiberglass recurve bow and everywhere we camped, I'd take, you know, 
a few dozen wooden arrows that Pop would fletch and make up for me and I'd be running off, shooting them everywhere, trying to shoot rabbits and foxes and hares and just stump shooting, getting the love for archery. Um, then when I was 17, my dad took me out bow fishing and gave me a bow. We went home and I was just started watching, binge watching um, Australian bow hunting DVDs. So one was a legendary bow hunter from Australia, Casey McCullum. He grew up in the Flinders Ranges. He's the first bow hunter in Australia to take the South Pacific Grand Slam. So that's every animal in Australia and New Zealand with a bow in a trophy class setting. So it's just insane. So he was, him and Bushman Brooks were the first people that just watching them gave me the love for bow hunting. My dad gave me a bow and I found found an area a property that um, we could hunt on and me and my mates started target shooting and we all shot the goats and then the, it just took off, you know, um, took a took a young deer, pretty fluke luck, but, you know, got a young deer and then just the passion grew and grew and grew. So, yeah, bow hunting is my passion. Um, going out with a rifle is convenient, you know, I might get – a morning here and there to go out. So it's just like if I go out, I've got meat, I'll take the bow, you know, I'll go for a wander and see if I can get a rabbit or a hare or a fox or, you know, run into a deer, even if I'm out there watching a deer. But if I need meat, I'll take the rifle. Okay, so we didn't touch on it and I did ask it before, so just to go back on it, we talked about the family in the media and you, get, I guess, getting hammered by the antis. Yes, so that one there wasn't so much I've, – I've never been shy of the media light. You know, I've always been – since I've started hunting, I started posting stuff on Facebook and, you know, I was met with people that I went to school with and family members um, very upset that I'm posting these animal animals up on Facebook, you know, smiling with a bow. I understand it. Early uh, – late 2016, around this time um, – I went out to a farm and shot a bunch of cats and then the antis just went wild, Um, started getting death threats, got doxxed, all of that. Um, Then I went over, I got contacted by a um, news agency, went over to Kangaroo Island, um, did a story of feral feral cats um, with my mate Aaron Wilsh and he shot a cat, unfortunately. The cat didn't die in the video that they got. We found it the next day, but the video wasn't the greatest to show bow hunting in the best light for the situation. Um, so that blew it up a bit more. I got doxxed by anonymous, um, you know, death threats from every country you can think of. Um, Joe Rogan brought it up on his podcast talking about it. Um, and then I can't remember if it wasn't last year, it would have been the year before, um, New South Wales was planning on, bringing uh, banning hunting for children in state forests and I got contacted by a media outlet because I post all this stuff up with my kids hunting and they asked if they could do a slide interview on it and yep not a problem you know I want to try and promote hunting in the best light as possible you know it doesn't always happen with media because they can twist and stuff but I'm going to try my best so, yeah, then it started getting a little bit of hate and controversy there. But um, overall, that was a pretty good outcome compared to the cat cat stuff. So, it's always baffled me 
with the cats. Yeah, <laughs> you just you look at what goes on out there, and the biggest threat to any other species in Australia, in my opinion, and the research, is cats. They kill millions, if not you know more, native wildlife. And we're not just talking about feral cats. We're also talking about domestic cats. And it's been one that has always puzzled me a little bit as to the Animal Justice Party, the Greens. Where is the common sense approach to say, hey, I've got no issue with cats personally. I would never keep one for me. That's just not my thing. I'm a dog person. Yeah. Um, but if you keep cats, that's that's cool. My neighbour keeps cats. It's 100% indoors all the time. You know, it's not this, you know, fantasy world where you put a little bell on the collar and it's not going to get a native, you know, a native animal. I know that that doesn't happen. I've seen, I've, I've been out there and seen a cat chewing on a bird with a bloody bell going off, you know, and that, that's been someone's pet. I see my property, there's three cats that frequent our property, try to get my chickens or they're always hanging around the chicken coop. You know, I look at that and go, okay, why do we have this... I guess, lack of ability to hammer cats. Is it because, and this is my theory, and I might be off the mark here, but this is what I think. I think that a lot of the supporters of some of these political parties are cat people. So they don't want to offend the cat people by pushing this agenda against cats because that's where the money comes from and, and the things like that. Now, if you really do care for animals, you want to probably have a ban on cats being outside and and make them 100% inside or have cat runs or whatever it might be, but we don't seem to do that. You look at the differences between dogs. You have a dog off the leash and it's all hell breaks loose. And and fair enough, don't get me wrong, I I don't advocate for for that unless it's in an area which is a designated off-leash area, but we don't have anything for cats. I think Canberra might have just implemented one where you've got to Keep them locked up. So, yeah, a lot of the South Australian um, councils have cat curfews where cats have to be indoors from, you know, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. type thing here in South Australia. And that's been implemented in the last few years. One thing that the um, cat stuff that I posted up did really get going at the time was all of this stuff for feral cats. So it brought a lot of limelight two feral cats and, um, you know, people's pets. So, you know, the threatened – I've never seen anything from the Threatened Species Commissioner about feral cats until that all happened. And then the Threatened Species Commissioner at the time, you know, did a post about me and all of that, you know. It was anti-me, but, you know, it got the got the word out there how bad feral cats, which is fine with me, you know. Talk all the shit about me as you want. It's getting the message out there, and I'm happy with that. You know, I've I've got pretty thick skin. You know, all these death threats and that just water off a duck's back. Um, so yeah, as long as people got talking about it, it was good. You know, Kangaroo Island, um, you can't have any cats outside. It's all all cat runs um, and indoor cats, which is is fantastic. You know, because cats not only here in Australia, but you know the amount of people in America that reached out to me. And told me how how much issues they have with feral cats, but not even just America, but Europe as well. I was getting messages from Germany saying how bad you know the the cat problems are out over there. You know, all these countries are having huge issues, 
and they're devastating, you know, ground nesting birds, reptiles, and all of these other other animals. When I look at this whole thing with cats, it doesn't make sense. And I look at the targeting of deer at the moment, and you would be well aware of what's going on in South Australia. And yep. I look at the you know, Centre for Invasive Species and the National Feral Deer Plan and all these, I guess, propaganda that they're pushing. And I don't see much on cats. And I sit there and go, you know, they've got one on pigs and they talk about rabbits and they talk about deer, but they don't really hammer brumbies and they don't really hammer cats. And it feels like there's that politicised nature of, oh, they're more people like them as pets I don't, we're not going to tread that water, even though out of all of them, you know, for me, if they're really the National Invasive Species Council, you'll want to target the biggest threat. That's cats, guys. Like, they, I don't know they, where your data's coming from, but it's cats. They definitely do target cats. So I can, you know, not as, as much, much, though. I, I'm not saying they don't, but I'm not saying that, you know, look at the money they've spent on this deer plan and how much they're pushing it. I have never, ever seen that for cats. I'm not saying they don't do it. They do. They, they cover everything. But I think they're very, they're very selective in what they're going to push from a public agenda where they're sponsoring social media posts. and like The, the invasive species, uh, sorry, the National Deer Plan has been everywhere. They're sponsored that from day dot and they're pushing it out there. I've never seen that pop up in any of my feeds. And again, it could be an algorithm, but I haven't seen that with cats. Yeah, so the cat stuff was, you know, in the last few years, they've brought out all these different humane trapping, um, you know, uh, like humane spray and neuter type traps. Um, you know, the cat sticks their head in, they get sprayed with this poison, um, all of that type of stuff. But because they get that blowback from aunties and cat lovers, that's why it's not in the limelight. They are... As far as I know, they are putting a lot of money into getting rid of cats. Kangaroo Island's a prime example of that. You know, they they set a date where they want to be completely feral cat free by, um, and they've been slowly working from one end of the island to the other end of the island. So it is a massive, massive undercat taking, and they are doing spending a lot of money on it. But it's that the love that people have for cats is probably why it's not so much in the media because of the blowback that they would get because of it. Is that the Invasive Species Council or is that the actual council council down there? I think it's a mixture of every, everything. Okay. You know, the Invasive Species Council down here have signs all across the state, you know, whether it's um, a deer or a fox or a cat, um, you know, in different towns saying, you know, this is an invasive species, rah, rah, rah. And I think, look, that you make a very good point that, this is the next thing we talked about social media and we talked about the internet before is that depending on the algorithm and what gets sent your way, you might miss that information that's out there. And that's something I'll put my hand up and say, Hey, you could be right here. I'm not saying you're lying to me because you know, I, I don't actually know, but I haven't seen the cat stuff. I've only seen realistically just deer, 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 deer coming out of theirs. Now, again, that could be because the algorithms that I, you know, I'm on Google searching about deer all the time. I'm not there searching feral cats because I ain't eating a feral cat. I'm not, you know, going out there to get some game cat to throw on the bus. Best barbie. Chinese food you'll ever eat. <laughs> you know, it, it is the algorithms. You know, you'll you'll see an article about deer, you're going to click on the, the deer article before you click on something to do with cats. You know, it might just 
you might just miss it, you know, because I, you know, I get sent all these different articles like weekly about cats, you know, um, not so much lately because of the deer thing, but yeah, you know, whenever there was something to do with trapping feral cats or controlling feral cats, I would get, you know, the same article sent to me a dozen times at least. <laughs> oh, look, and you're, you've been a really great advocate for getting it out there. And, and I think what you said was right there, like the bow hunt didn't go well on Kangaroo Island and it was filmed. And that's one I've always, I don't know where I sit on it. That's the, it, it's sort of a blessing and a curse. Things go wrong in hunting. Doesn't matter if it's a bow, doesn't matter if it's a rifle, Things go wrong, and that's just part of the nature of what happens. If you actually compare that to nature when you're watching an animal get eaten by another prey animal, it's a lot worse than than what that is. But the problem is we've got that disconnect in society and where people don't see those things. Do you think there is an issue showing that to the broader public in the sense that it does portray hunters in a bad light and that you know that the media are going to grab a hold of it as a bit of a, a twist of the knife for hunters, they're not going to go out there and show someone having these clean ethical kills all the time because that's not sensationalising, it's not selling papers. Do you think that's a massive issue for hunters is that they, they almost want to attach the bad stuff as opposed to the good stuff? You don't see much positive media representation. We did, something came out the other day, they did, but it's – few and far between. So, yeah, when it comes to media grabbing hold to that type of stuff, you know, you know, I see on Facebook groups, you run a, run a Facebook group, I run a bunch of bow hunting Facebook groups, you know, people post the animal up with best light as possible, you know, um, in the bow hunting aspect, you know, people don't want to see arrows sticking out of an animal in the photo, that type of thing, put dirt over the wound um, to try and portray hunting in the best light when i think about it though is you know the people that are picking up the media when they're picking up on these types of things they're not caring about what the animal so much looks like in the photo you know they don't care whether there's an arrow in the photo or not they don't care whether there's blood in the photo or not what they care about is that there's a dead animal in the photo um and that seems to be a lot of the issues, you know. We try and censor our stuff for the media and people so people don't, you know, of course they're going to pick up the worst of the worst of the photos, but, you know, they're not they're not caring that there's an arrow in it. What they care about is the animal itself is dead. You know, they see, you know, a lot of these anti-hunters, they see these animals not just as animals. They're looking at them like if you're sitting there with a dead person you know it's they're picking that's how they're viewing those photos i'm not sure how many animal activists you've spoken to anti-hunters and all of that but that's that's what they're looking at you know they they it's a sentient being being to them you know um so when media runs with this negative stuff whether it's you know cecil the lion um, and, you know, countless other stories along that same, you know, Kendall Jones back in the day when she went on her African safari, you know, there was a few photos of her standing with a giraffe. People can't switch off from these Disney characters and, you know, cartoon characters that we've grown up with watching all these movies of, you know, Lion King, Madagascar, all of this different stuff, and they're putting those 
those shows, those movies behind these photos of dead animals and think, you know, they've got personalities and, you know, conscience like humans do. But, you know, that's that's what they're seeing when they see all this this stuff in negative light. I think it's a bit more. And this is because I've really spent a lot of time trying to think about this. And I love arguing with people. And when I say that, like respectfully, because I like to unpack my own thoughts and opinions. And I feel the way of talking to people that are opposite viewpoints of my own is then I can start to understand the holes in my arguments. So I've always thought about the grip and grin. And for me, the grip and grin, I understand it because I understand how hard it is that hunting's not easy. I went and backtracked of when I had my first state forest hunt, which was mid-2019 or early 2019, and I still haven't got a deer. So I understand the longevity of the situation that is hunting. You said yourself 300 hours, I think you said, before you took the first deer with the bow. So from the grip and grin, I think that's the worst thing for the people that don't understand hunting because you are standing over a dead animal and you're showing emotions that show that you're happy. And I don't think, I agree that they wouldn't be happy with the dead animal anyway. I don't think they're that far detached from reality that animals don't die in the wild and they know that occurs. I think that's an emotive response from seeing somebody taking pleasure in the fact that they're with a dead animal. And I think that's the trigger. I don't think it's the dead animal itself. I do actually think it's the that emotive response because they don't get that. They see a dead animal and they're upset. When you've got a hunter sitting there over an animal and they're smiling, they don't understand how long it has taken to, to either save up to go and take that animal or spent the time and the hours chasing that animal and again this is where there's this people don't understand and look i'll put my hand up because i had so many people message me when i started talking about the feral deer action plan saying mate they're a pest there's too many of them and i'm only going on my experience in a state forest I'm, you know, I'm, I haven't, you know, Cody, shout out to him again, but, you know, he sent me all these videos of him just saying, buddy, I think he sent me one time there was 10 red deer just bedding in the middle of a, an open paddock. And I'm like, I've never really seen that. So that side of things I am detached to. I, I'm not, you know, I have no idea that side of things. So again, it's everybody's different perspective. And that's why I like to hear people's perspectives. And I'm not always right. And I'll put my hand up and say, hey, I'm giving you my thoughts and opinions from my perspective. And I could be wrong. I'm happy to be wrong. And I'm happy to hear from you as to why I'm wrong, because then that makes my arguments a bit stronger. So yeah, it's a really interesting topic, that grip and grin. And I feel that does the most damage. Don't get me wrong. Let's make that clear. I'm not saying don't do it. I know when I shoot my first deer, I will be smiling my head off, you know, but I can understand the other people who don't do hunting and that's the trigger. See, you've you pretty much, you know, backed up my, my argument there of people seeing you with a dead animal and that's being the trigger point. They don't care how the animal died per se. They just see you standing there with a smile, whether you're holding a bow or a rifle, and that's where the emotion's coming from. Like, I'll post something up with a rifle and they'll be like, oh, why don't you be a man and go shoot it with a bow? 
but then I'll post something up with a something I've shot with a bow, and they'll be like, "Why don't you go kill it with a knife?" You know, and then you get people. I've never done it, but you get people that go out pig dogging, and they'll, you know, because they they hunt they kill it with a knife, and then they'll be like, "Oh, that's disgusting. Why don't you just kill it with your bare hands?" And it's just that always that one step back is what they're going to. You know, they think we're that far removed from nature that we're not supposed to be in that you know, that circle of life anymore. And yeah, like it's people are that far removed, you know, I've, it's, it's silly. Like in my local area, we've got a duck pond and we're having lots of issues with, you know, someone was walking a dog and a dog killed a duck and the whole community was heartbroken that the dog killed a duck. And, you know, they've gone up, they've grabbed and grabbed the nest, they've gone, you know, they've gone and incubated the eggs so that the eggs could hatch. But it wasn't even a native duck. It was just a feral, feral duck that someone's released down there, you know. Um, but the whole community was traumatized over this one duck that a dog killed, you know. But that's nature for the dog to hunt these things, you know. Everyone wants nature to be nature, but as soon as nature's nature, they're traumatized. <laughs> Mate, I couldn't agree more. We had one where I used to live and it was hilarious in the sense that the eels were eating the little ducklings and they <laughs> did it in front of people and the trauma. Like people were getting on Facebook talking about how their kids were traumatised and running away and I'm like, shouldn't you just be explaining to your kids this is the way things are? Like this is nature. Like this, this isn't something to shy away from but the problem is is that I don't think people get it. I don't. You're right. Exactly what you're saying is that there's this anthropomorphizing of the, the species, or you know, whether it be Disney or whatever it might be, and you sit there and go, "Man, come on!" Like at the end of the day, we are part of the ecosystem, and we so many people just don't understand that. You need an apex predator, and hey. We are an apex predator. That at the end of the day, that is what we are. We are designed we are the to do apex that. predator. <laughs> Correct, and you know? we have we have evolved into that. We are not the the fastest, and we are not great at night. And uh, we make a hell of a lot of noise when you're walking around the bush. But we have the intelligence that other species don't have to make us that apex predator. And That's because it. we've been able to build cities and and all that. That is where people now think we don't need to be part of the ecosystem and that causes a massive problem. I was talking with a um, farmer the other day and he was talking about how wallaby populations have just boomed and that's causing so much problems but because they're this native species, again, there's so many issues with hunting them, same as kangaroos. Yeah. And it's a flow-on effect, and I really do feel for farmers at the moment because I don't know if you saw the other day, but uh, the uh, – who was it? Um, Shooter Farmer Fishers Party, Mark, um, he posted about lamb prices and some were going for as much as $6 in the, the sales because, you know, of live export, and there's a, a million different reasons at the moment, and he said the, the most went for just over 100 and it was like – Man, I feel so sorry for the poor farmers because they're up against it selling their own product. And then on top of that, they're battling to be able to control numbers of kangaroos or wallabies because they're native. And then you've got other 
factors as well. And it's just, man, I, I'd, I'd hate to be a farmer. And my, you know, hat goes off to all farmers out there because, geez, they must do it tough in different times. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, like they're having to put up with these native animals that destroy fences, crops. They outcompete, you know, these farm animals. And jumping back to the feral deer plan, action plan, you know, they're dealing with the same type of thing when it comes to deer as well. You know, yes. Uh, look, I'm I'm not a great person to speak about it because I haven't read it completely. I've had it broken down to me. I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> I'm not a, a like a very literate guy. You know, I'm I'm pretty dyslexic. I'm horrible with my reading and writing. I take in all of my information in the form of podcasts. <laughs> but um, you know, I've had the National Deer Plan broken down to me so that I could understand it, and the person that has broken it down to me is Dan from Eureka Outdoors. And I would love to hear you two chat about it. Yes, you might not meet in the middle so much about it, but I think it would be great to have both sides, you know, because he comes from the biology background and, you know, you come from your passion and your love, you know. He's a hunter as well, so he's not out to – get rid of every deer because he enjoys hunting as well but he understands the the you know methods behind the madness and some of the the smaller stuff we as hunters don't generally get you know and farmers you know they they want some of this stuff as well there's a lot of farmers that don't you know you talk about cody he's had helicopters chase deer off his property when he's been out hunting and stuff like that you know so not everyone is for it and i definitely do not agree with you know the methods that have been down here in south australia as discussed on your episode with jake nichols um you know it's absolutely disgusting i hate the waste of meat but it is a problem and you know, when it comes to hunting and hunters, we are our own worst enemy. You know, um, we tend not to be the grown up in the room, and that's why we don't tend to get a say on these things because we're very, you know, as much as you know, I'm a hunter, I'm all for hunters, but hunters tend to be very childish when it comes to not getting their own way. We're the first to make a noise, but we don't do too much about it when it comes to the legislation side of stuff. I don't even think we make that much of a noise, to be honest. Like when you look at the duck hunting and things like that, the the time to make noises was to write in and and really push. And it just didn't happen. Like, you know, having 5,000 people. That's what I mean on the legislation. I I completely agree. There's just stuff. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you there. And, and same as Dan, I'd like to actually unpack his side of it because I get he, you know, when we, we put it out, he was, uh, again, there was a few comments against of the poisoning side of things. And I'd love to have that conversation because I understand where he's coming. There is a massive number out there and I get that we need to control them. I'm very against the poisoning element so of it because I. the poison, and I know he's previously said, and I, again, I'm only taking of what he's actually written on thing. Oh, and he might be of a different opinion. I'd love to have that conversation. Is that from my interpretation, what he was saying is that they aren't going to use poison. They just want to get it approved. And for me, it's like, well, they're not going to approve something and not use it. You know, yeah. you don't go and sit your driver's license test and don't get your driver's license. You know, that doesn't make sense in, in that sense. I get where he's coming from and I get that there is an issue and I agree in the sense we need to minimise deer numbers. And what I don't like about the, the feral deer plan 
is the fact that I think we could do it far better. And I don't think there's the promotion of hunters that could be. And I've said it before, where was there putting, instead of using this aggregator where they're going to poison deer, let's bait them and have hunters come in and shoot them. Sydney has so many hunters in it and there's not that many places to hunt in Sydney, let's be real. If you gave people the opportunity to go 30 minutes up the road to a national park in a shooting lane off a bait pole and shoot a deer so you've got venison, I tell you what, I reckon a lot of people would be very happy to throw some cash at that and do that and everybody wins rather than just going, oh, we're going to just throw some some poison. And that's the interpretation I got from this National Feral Deer Action Plan. Now, again, I, I, as I said previously, I could be wrong, but me unpacking it, I do have an academic background. I've lectured at university. I, um, you know, I've, I've done a fair bit of that. So I would, I would love to hear it, um, you know, hearing you break down stuff the way you do. So, yeah, the animals, they compete for food. You know, the, the area can only support a... A, a density, you know, that's how the environments evolved for that area. Um, you know, so when it comes to that type of stuff, you know, it's been broken down to me by Dan. So that's why I believe Dan would be someone who would be great on your podcast for you to to go back and forth because I don't come from that academic background, you know. <laughs> I, look, I think you're exactly right and I'll, I'll back him there. I think we do a really poor job in this country of going, okay, we're never going to be able to wipe out deer, cane toads, whatever it might be, right? Foxes, rabbits, you've seen all that happen. We need to look at the number that can be supported in an area where everything can thrive. And we don't do a good job of that. And look, kangaroos are the perfect example for that is you go out 100%. west and there's far too much with far, especially in, in times of drought and we're coming into El Nino. So we're going to be coming back into that and we don't control the population and we get to the point where all these animals are starving and dying. It's one of the things I really respect the North American conservation model and how they work out this is the amount we need to take off the landscape and this is how many tags are going to be presented. And that should be done in a far better way than what we currently do in this country because that is an opportunity for conservation as far as I'm concerned and the well-being of all animals. Yeah, that definitely works with a native animal aspect as the North American wild. Um, it wouldn't work so much with our introduced species because, you know, you know, you look at the places where they are considered a game species and were considered a game species and, you know, it's hard because, you, you know, South Australia, you can hunt them all year round. You don't have a calibre restriction on any of the deer species where, you know, some other states have calibre restrictions. Um, you know, Tasmania, they're still considered a game animal. Um, so it's, it's hard when it comes to those those types of things. But when it comes to kangaroos, I'm a, a 100% agree. I think that the system should be completely changed up to, you know, make it easier to control kangaroo numbers because, you know, for my main hunting property, there's probably 100 kangaroos for every deer on about a thousand acres on my my main hunting property. Yeah, it's, the deer will get the bad rap. Yeah, yeah it's, it's crazy it's, sometimes. It, and look, I get it's crazy. A hard hooved animal, and they do do damage. And I just came back from a hunt in the snowy mountains, and you can clearly see the deer in the tracks. But then they're with brumbies, and I'll yeah. tell you now, there is so much more damage coming from the brumbies, and you can clearly see the difference in hooves and the size. 
and around the waterways just from them going to walk down and, and have a drink. The damage that that is doing is far more than the deer. And I had a couple of trail cams out and I'll tell you now, I caught far more Brumbies on the trail cameras than I did deer. So when you hear the argument about, oh, there's more deer than, than Brumbies, especially talking up here in New South Wales in Kosciuszko National Park and I also believe down in, in Victoria in the Alpine National Park or whatever they call it down there, I'm not too sure. But, geez, it's another one though. Horses are feral. They're, they're an animal that has been introduced but because of the man from Snowy River and the fact yeah. that we ride them, you know, that all of a sudden we have this support to keep them on the landscape. And I don't understand that because especially when deer at least are a valuable resource that we eat, whereas the horses, what is their purpose or what is their value on the landscape other than the background of the man from Snowy River. That's the argument that I always hear is that they're a part of our cultural tradition and heritage. And So I'm not sure so much there, but, you know, I've got mates that go and get permits to round up these these Brumbies um, and then they, they break them and use them as stock horses or show horses and all of that type of stuff. So they do have that cultural background for those horsey type people. I'm not a horse guy, you know. I look at those those horses, those brumbies in in those areas and I look at them the same as I look at as as a deer, you know. That's potential meat source. I won't complain with with brumby steaks. Oh. You know, it's all it's all meat. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> that's going to upset some people, but <laughs> uh, you know what? I I have said it so many times I'm with you. Like there is that many down there when you go into a state forest or a national park or whatever it might be to hunt them and to take the meat, man, that I, I can't understand why they're not on the list when you book your national, uh, sorry, your state forest. I don't understand why they're not on the list for us to be able to harvest. There's so many of them. It's the same with cats, man. Yeah. It's just the the way people look at them. It's you crazy. Know, horse people and cat people tend to be the most craziest of people. Yeah. <laughs> I, look, I get it. Like they're not, you know, I think horses are an absolutely beautiful animal, same as deer, same as a lot of, like even cats. As I said, I'm not a big cat person, but- I love watching a documentary on the lions and tigers and things like that because they are such a, a fantastic predator and, and props to their evolution in becoming that. But there's a time and a place for all of it. And as much as I love deer, there is a, a number that needs to be on the landscape as well. And I think that we're, we're seeing a massive jump in numbers and that's come on the back of the bushfires and all that regrowth and the good feed, a lot of water around and the, the population has boomed. Now, I get people are jumping up and down saying, hey, we need to shoot a lot and, and whatnot too. I also do believe nature will course correct and we're coming into a drought. And, you know, you see that in different animal species and populations where one, you know, they talk about in Yellowstone all the time that you'll have the the deer numbers or whatever will explode or elk numbers will explode and then all the wolf numbers will explode because there's a lot of food there and then when the water dries up and the feed dries up, there's less food so more pups will die and nature has a very good way of just course correcting and balancing itself out. So sometimes I think, yes, we need to be involved but we also need to take a step back and go, hey, there's all these different elements. It's multifaceted in how we conserve everything that's going on too it it does course correct but again that's when it comes to the north american side of stuff versus the australian side of stuff you've got 
um, native animals versus introduced animals. So the deer, the elk, the wolves, they're all native to that landscape. So, of course, they're going to course correct this type of stuff. When you've got a species on the landscape that doesn't belong there, it's going to be a bit different because they don't have that natural predator. Yeah, I I agree there that they don't have the natural predator to take them off, but they've also got the resources to take them off. Like if we're talking, we're coming into a real dry summer and the feed drives dries up, there is going to be much more animals die because the feed's not there. They'll starve. Like we just talked about the kangaroos. If the feed's not there in areas for kangaroos, the feed's not going to be there for deer as well. So I do agree with what you're saying is where currently deer are too. They tend to be a bit more on the eastern seaboard. So the comparison isn't fantastic when we're talking about the central west being a much more drought-affected area as opposed to the southern sort of um, southeast coastal areas because, you know, the deer won't be as impacted there, same as the kangaroos too. So I completely agree with that. All right, let's just before we start to wrap up and get into yours, mate, tell us about your podcast before we jump over. How long has it been going? Who's been your favorite guests? Like what are some memorable moments from that? So, And then we'll get over onto yours. That's a tough one. So Hunting Connection Podcast is the name of my podcast. It came about, you know, I've listened to podcasts. I've been listening to Joe Rogan since about episode 500-ish and then I've just jumped on the podcast wagon, you know, listening to – I drive a truck, I deliver plasterboard for a living. Um, So I've got podcast cranking, you know. Last year I – on Spotify, they do a recap of how many minutes you've been listening to music and – um, podcast. I think I had sixty or seventy thousand minutes dedicated to podcasts, Jeez. which is just ridiculous amount of. But you know, I, I cover a lot of podcasts, um, so I've always had that passion for it, and I've always had a passion to speak about you know the environment, animals, and hunting and fishing and the outdoors. Um, it's just something I've always been interested in, and love discussing and teaching people about the environment. You know, well. You know, I was a Steve Elwin fan for longer than I can remember. As soon as I found out who he was, you know, I've always loved the environment. You know, every research project in school was on the environment. So when it came to the podcasting stuff, you know, it just came pretty natural. So I started it uh, just over a year and a half ago, um, maybe closer to two years. I do it fortnightly. um, And, yeah, I, I get a bunch of different guests on chatting it chatting about a range of different stuff. I try and cater for new guys getting into the sport. So I ask a lot of questions um, about gear and um, advice on getting into it. I ask for stories, whether it's funny, dangerous, all of those types of stories as well. And then I also ask about like the public opinion of hunting and hunters as well. So I'd like to cover a, a vast array of topics to cater for everyone's um, needs when it comes to it. I get a lot of messages from new hunters thanking me for my advice and thanking my guests for advice on, you know, whether it's gear or how to approach different um, scenarios when it comes into getting into hunting. Favorite guest? Now, that's a hard one, you know. (laughs) Um, I've had some spectacular guess whether they're known or they haven't been known um probably one of the um most known guests that i've had on was um robbie from blood origins hey i resent that 
So that was that was a big deal for me because I love his work. Um, you know, he's someone that's backing hunting and putting, you know, science behind it. I'm glad you're doing it and I, I love what you're doing because you do put it out there in a positive light. And for me, that's so important because I don't care if people are listening to me or, you know, they listen to you or they listen to Hunter's Campfire, whoever else they want to listen to. If they're listening to it and the message is out there positive from good people, that's a win as far as I'm concerned. I loved your last one with uh, – it's Mitch from Live a Little, wasn't it? Off the top of my head, yeah. Yep. And it just it just resonated with me because I have that spearfishing background and, you know, that's how I got it. And that his progression was just pretty much like mine. So hearing about that and going, oh, sweet, he's got so many deer now and he's got this, 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 it, it gives me that sort of hope and going, oh, stick with it, you know, it will pay off. And Because it does get tough sometimes. You know, as I said, I started chasing deer in mid-2019 and we're now coming to the back end of 2023 and I haven't got that deer on the ground yet. So from, you know, hearing all these other stories is a real positive. And I have to agree with something you just said there is those tips and tricks different people just talking about things and it just pops up and it's just so natural and you, I'll be listening and going, oh, that's a good idea. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. And, you know, it might be something that I wouldn't have asked per se or someone else wouldn't have asked, but that's the beauty. And I know, you know, there's so many hunting podcasts coming up in Australia and that's fantastic. I think it's great because it's great. for me, everyone has a different style. And we talked about this. I edit mine. You don't. You like that natural sort of free-flowing effect. Perfect. If people like to listen to you, great. If they don't want to listen to me, that's cool too. You know, like I, I'd love if they listen to both. But the reality is 100%. that as long as they're listening to someone doing it positively and they're learning and that progression and, and that's such a win for hunting and that's what we need to stand for at the end of the day and do the best thing we can to promote our sport, our lifestyle, whatever you want to call it. That's what we need to do, and you do a great job of that, mate. So I'm um, oh, thank super you, man. excited I that you've come on, and we're doing this crossover. It's really cool. And, guys, I think here's the fun. perfect time if you want to jump on over tomorrow. Well, I mean, depending if you've listened this back, it's probably not tomorrow. But, hey, just jump in the time machine and go and check out Hunting Connections Podcast Part 2 is coming up now. Well, boys. It's been a pleasure. What can I say? We've been to some pretty special places and met some pretty special people. I hope we can catch you all on the next podcast. So I'm Katie Gearan. Good on Australia. If you have a topic, guest, question, or any gear that you want to hear about on the podcast, shoot us an email, australianhuntingandbeyond at gmail.com. Alternatively, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All the links are in the show notes. If you haven't already, Make sure you give us a review and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. Thanks for joining us and we'll catch you next time.